0: Well, good morning. We want to welcome you to our morning worship service, and we're glad to see all of you here this morning. I'm sure there's some many that are on break, even for the summer, you know, for the vacations and so on, and some that are ill. But we're glad, still glad, to see all of you that are here this morning. Um, Pretty much, um, just one announcement which you've been following, uh, which was going to occur today, and that is the luncheon, and that'll be held in the You know, I never thought I would ever say say that, that we're going to have our lunch in in the new building. Just praise God for that. You know, we give thanks to the Lord for that every day. Uh, So anyway, um, basically, your uh, announcements are in the bulletin, or if you come early, you can get them up on the the board there. So this morning, uh, in preparation for our pastor's uh, message, I'd like for you to open your Bibles or your devices, I might say, to Isaiah chapter 8. Just a couple of verses this morning. By the way, if you're here this morning, and you're new this morning, I just uh, like to you know that we don't pass a plate to give to a passive Bible Church. There's three ways you can do it. You can do it in person in the back. That means you can drop off your your your, your, um, your, your giving back in back in the box. You give online, or you can email it in. So, uh, whichever you, you choose. That's three ways that we can give back to the church. Uh, this morning, uh, reading verses uh, 12 and 13 out of Isaiah chapter 8. It says, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of, the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are most grateful for another opportunity to come and worship together as believers in Christ. What an opportunity we have, Lord, and we thank you for that. We take advantage of that each and every day to worship and praise you and thank you. And just completely, Lord, uh, thanking you for your goodness and your love and your grace. It is through your strength, Father, that we live day by day and we depend on it, and so Lord, even this morning we thank you for your word, the word that can change our lives, a word, Father that can move us a word that can encourage us, the word that can help us, Father, in everyday lives. You provided that even this morning for us, so Father, we thank you for all the realm, Father, we know that Through your goodness, you provide not only sustenance, but also healing, Lord, that many people depend on because of your wonderful and gracious hand. And so this morning, Father, we just entrust this morning into your hands, Father, and may the Lord Jesus Christ be just uplifted and praised among your people, Father. Thank you for your goodness. In Christ's name, amen.
1: Good morning, y'all. Would you stand with us for a time of worship? i Just lost that song. That next song I can't remember how it goes now. Can we skip to the next one? I'm sorry guys. Now when I do remember. No one caught in sin remains beside.
2: good morning. Good morning. Uh, children, I think we got Children's Church today, so you guys can go on there to uh, Explorers and Adventurers. That's where you're going today. Remember, we get we have an advantage today, and Ernie didn't mention it, but I'll mention it, and that is that we aren't going to smell the fried chicken. So I can preach for like an hour and a half. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that to you. Wouldn't do that to you because you know the fried chicken is there, or barbecue chicken in the case and what I brought. Anyway, um, but we do have that lunch. We ask anybody to stay. If, you're, if you don't have other plans, just stay, whether you remember to bring something or not, uh, because otherwise those of us who brought a ton are going to have to take it home. So you might as well eat it. Um, so stay and enjoy the fellowship and our first time in our new dining room. We're going to have to name this building, by the way. We ought to have a some kind of a survey, or I hate to have a vote, but we can't keep calling it the new building forever, right? That doesn't work, right? That's like, I, I am not the new pastor at El Paso Bible Church here. I've been the new pastor twice, but eventually I'm just the guy, right? The building is eventually not the new building, it's the building, right? So we'll think about that. Uh, but please join us, and we're going to have a good time over there. Uh, today I'm sure, uh, and I'm sure it's going to smell good when we go over there. Uh, but go ahead and open in your Bibles, the First Peter. Uh, we're going to continue our our series as is uh, normal, right? Literally, um, it takes uh, substantial, substantial input or substantial emergencies to change that uh, practice that we have. Uh, but remember that we've talked about in First Peter, the, the nature of who we are, and I think that's a really beneficial aspect to this book, because it directly addresses like you can read through First Corinthians, right? You read through First Corinthians and you go, "Oh my goodness." It's almost like a big gossip reel, right? You read it and you go, "Oh my goodness, That church is horrible. I'm glad we're not like that. And mostly we're not. Mostly we're not. It is a warning to how bad it can get in a lot of ways. But 1 Peter isn't like that, right? 1 Peter doesn't tell you what church should be like or what you should expect in the world when it goes off the rails, when you're off the reservation, right? I told you all I'm a, I'm a redskin. I can say off the reservation, all right? off the reservation, when it goes nuts. It tells you how nuts it is when it's normal. It tells you how nuts it is when things are going the way they're supposed to be, you know, according to your expectations as choice aliens in the world, people who have a purpose, a special and particular purpose in God's plan, and who are strangers in the world and to the world. So you're special and weird. That's another way of saying choice aliens, special weirdos. It's our identity, right? There's other aspects of our identity. We're born again by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We have an identity in Christ. We are clothed with Him, with His righteousness. That is who we are. Uh, We have certain benefits that come along with that. A lot of people want to know when you talk to them about certain aspects of uh, of of their spiritual life, of church life, they want to know what's in it for me. That's not bad. What is in it for you? But this isn't talking about those temporal considerations, right? It's talking about the future in eternity. You have an eternal, imperishable inheritance, ready and waiting for you as a believer in Jesus Christ that is ready to go already. What it is waiting for you is for you to be ready to lay hold of it because your identity is Christ, but your likeness is not Christ yet, right? You are not in his glorious image yet, although y'all look pretty good. I'm not saying you're ugly or anything. I'm just saying that you're not glorious yet. You're not like Jesus. You don't have his body, a glorious likeness of his body that he has promised, that we will be like him when we see him as he truly is, right? Remember, that's my favorite verse out of 1 John and maybe my whole ver- favorite whole verse in the Bible at times. So you have opportunities. You have opportunities to serve the Lord with that knowledge. You have an opportunity to serve without anxiety or apprehension, Uh, that you're having to earn something and you're not quite making it, right? You're not quite making it. You are who you are. You have an identity in Christ. You have an inheritance that is waiting for you. You are born again, and nobody that ever got born again ever got unborn again. So you have that identity in him. You're secure in that. And so that frees you up to do some incredible serving things because the risk of the liability is... uh, contained. We have obligations, right? And we, that's where, kind of where we are. We're in one of the obligations in the text. But the priority was that we are to love one another from the heart, to sacrificially live our lives with the best interests of each other in mind and in our actions, to love one another from the heart sincerely, not hypocritically. And then to long for the pure milk of the Word. Those two things go together, right? When you, tell, when you talk to somebody and they say something like, and I get this, that's boring, Josh. I don't want to know what the Bible says. I just want to love Jesus. That's cheap chicken bologna. Can I, can I denigrate chicken bologna any further in your eyes? That's the nature of the doctrine. You do not know how to just love Jesus until you know something about what Jesus said, and the way that you know how to do that is right here. So don't tell me that that's mutually exclusive. I'm tired of that. I'm tired of hearing it from people who should know better, people who write books and publish books and make that their career in ministry because that's just it's not even fluff. To call it fluff is to dignify it somewhat. Right, because you like fluff, don't you? Y'all watch football, don't you? Guys? That's nothing but fluff. Professional sports, especially. That's fluff. You like fluff. Fluff has a purpose. You can relax, chill out, whatever. I don't watch professional sports. Everything I do for fluff looks like other work, mostly. I'm very boring. But that's just error. It's just error. So we don't like that. So you need to long for the pure milk of the Word like a newborn infant longs for its mother's milk. That means you don't get bored by it. You understand that it is important, necessary uh, for your growth, for your maturity, for the trajectory that God has for you as choice aliens in the world. The milk of the Word is the nutrition upon which that is achieved. In order to keep our behavior excellent to obey the structures that God has given us, right? Uh, Government, human relationships, marriage, economic relationships, and our employment and production, those things. Uh, Finally, he said, be harmonious with each other. Sing pleasantly is the idea. Serve pleasantly. Not everybody has to do all the same things, but everything together should be pleasant, You know, well, most people know when something's out of harmony. And finally, said to seek peace and pursue it. To seek peace and pursue it. If you don't seek peace, you will not find it. And we're not talking about peace with God. Um, you are reconciled to Him the same time you become His child, same time you receive your identity, because Peter is telling these choice aliens that they still need to seek peace and pursue it. And if you don't, find, if you don't pursue it, if you don't seek it, you won't find it. The end result of that is, by the examples that, that Peter gave, using that terminology, is that God would set his face against you. And the result of that, we looked at the biblical survey of that. It's never used of, of those relationships, but you are alienated from your human relationships. If you fail to seek peace in them, if you fail to pursue it, that was the, the application that we want, pe- everybody wants, you want peace. You want peace? Then you need to pursue it and seek it. You, you don't want, and, and understand, that's a positive thing, you don't want apathetic coexistence. Right? right? I don't give a crap and neither do you so we can get along. (laughs) That's not biblical peace. That's not something you have to pursue. You just have to stay away. Just social distance for us introverts. I've been social distancing since I was 10 years old, right? Spent a lot of time talking about that the last few years. We're continuing that category So we want peace, we don't want alienation, we're supposed to love the word, we're supposed to love each other, we're supposed to long for it, we're supposed to grow, we're supposed to embrace our future, embrace our temporal purpose. So he says here in verse 13, which is our text for the day, he says, who is there to harm you, to do evil to you, if you prove zealous or enthusiastic for what is good, I mean, that's the general expectation, certainly the general expectation in the local body. If you do what is good, people don't naturally do evil things to you, especially within the church. Now, y'all, all, if you've been in church, you can come up with exceptions, can't you? Uh, if you're a—I don't want to alienate any pastor's kids in here, but if you're a pastor's kid, you can certainly point to your father's career— and point to where your father did the right thing and people did evil to him for it. That is ubiquitous in pastoral ministry. Nobody escapes it. It happens. If it doesn't happen to you, you need to question what you're doing in pastoral ministry. That's how that goes. But it happens to all. You can all come up with exceptions. But general principle, who is there to harm you? And we need to understand, I think, the biblical precedent there, right? And there's another way to look at this. If you do what is good, who is there to harm you, right? If you do what is right, and we forget that we're the immortals in this story. Yeah? You forget that you're the immortals. I forget that I'm an immortal. I completely forgot. Yesterday, Thaddeus and I were climbing around on a roof like a bunch of dummies, a non-finished roof. Stadis was doing it because I told him to, so he wasn't the dummy. I was the dummy. This was my idea. Crawling around an unfinished roof, I did not feel immortal. Climbing around an unfinished roof, I don't feel immortal today. Most of the lower half of my body doesn't want to work today, after eight or nine hours doing that. We forget. We forget our place in the story. We forget that we're the immortals, and there is a limitation What human beings can do to each other, isn't there? Right? Jesus describes as those who can kill the body do not fear them. We're the immortals, and I've taken to calling everyone else mere mortals because I'd like it. It's the only reason I do it because it kind of pokes people a little bit the world is full of mere mortals and they really don't have a whole lot to do to us that they can do They have profound limitations so we need to look at it that way remember that we're the immortals in this narrative but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness happy There's no verb there. Just a declaration. Blessed, happy. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Even if we do suffer for doing what is right, Scripture presents that as an opportunity. An opportunity to serve the Lord and to please Him to do what is right and to receive a reward for doing it to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Peter quotes Isaiah 8, and I want to read it because he quotes it from the Septuagint, and most of the English translations don't mirror the the Old Testament translation in their own text, which is kind of strange. Uh, But, Ernie read it this morning, Isaiah 8, 12 to 13, you are not to say, it is a conspiracy in regard to all that people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy and he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. So my New American Standard calls that translates that conspiracy part as intimidation and that is the point, right? Of conspiracy theories and all that is to make you fearful and to use your fear to instigate a certain type of action. Um, Christians get ridiculed a good bit. I don't know if you've noticed y'all noticed no you haven't been ridiculed you're not on the list yeah i need to hang out in circles i hang out in circles uh we get we get ridiculed a bit for being so-called conspiracy theorists a lot of times uh, we're just acknowledging actual events and their meaning we are it's true i think in a lot of cases Follow the money. That's not actually, that's not, when they call you a conspiracy theorist, they're telling you you're imagining something. How many people, I mean, there are people in here that are, you know, quite a bit older than I am. How many of the things that you got called a conspiracy theorist for in the 60s are now a matter of historical record? I mean, we're not talking about flat earthers, right? You know, that's a growing contingent of our society, in fact, friends of mine are now telling me that the moon landing was uh, fake and that it was done with special effects. You who were alive, I was not alive in 1969. My youngest uncle was born in 1969, but I've seen the special effects from 1969. They're not going to fool you. We're not talking about that, right? We get called that a lot. And I think you can go overboard, right, with, with what gets called a conspiracy theory. But even in my own lifetime, there are a whole lot of things that used to just be called a conspiracy theory that are just matters of historical record now. They came about, or well, were proven to be true. We don't need to go down that list. I want you to understand that Peter does not say that those are in your imagination. He does not say to not be suspicious of things you should be suspicious of, like the federal government, quite frankly, large portions of it. He does not say that. There are plenty of evil people, and I'm not talking about Justice Administration, folks. Um, My whole lifetime, I would go back 110 years roughly to the start of most of it. The federal government began to take over your personal lives in ways they had never done about 110 years ago, and that trajectory has not altered since. 1913, very pivotal year for that. Peter does not say that that doesn't exist. He does not say for you to stop trying to understand them, to, try having no- to stop having knowledge of them, to try to investigate them, or even as a voter in the United States to have some accountability exercised over people like that. What he says is, don't fear it. Don't fear it. In fact, back in Isaiah 8, he had to tell Israel, don't fear the conspiracies. He doesn't say they're not real. In fact, you can point to the conspiracies earlier in Isaiah as being what Isaiah is talking about. Those were real. They may be real, Don't go for the hokey ones. If you come into my office and tell me the moon landing wasn't real, I'm going to to laugh. I just want you to know I'm going to ridicule you. That's positive peer pressure in my mind. It's the best option I would have. I will mock you. There are ones that aren't real. There are ones that are very real, and I won't argue with that. Peter says don't fear those things. Don't fear them. And that's the intimidation aspect of it. They're trying to make you fearful so that you, can, so that you moti- are motivated to do something. That's not a valid motivation in the Christian life. Remember, you're the immortals in the story. You're the, we're the, not just you, I am too. We're the immortals in the story. You have the best possibility, the best potential, the best reason to be fearless in this world that, that anybody does. So Is not to fear them. And I know some of you' all will say, and I may have said this at one time myself, I try well, I'm, I'm not scared of that. I'm not scared of those things. Just I'm angry. I'm angry. Peter would say, not to be angry, but Stop for a second. Because I've been doing this long enough, I've been a parent long enough to know that in the extreme, there are a number of emotions in their extreme, that all come out as anger. All. A lot of them come out as anger. Fear among them, I think, chief among them. I had to realize when I was parenting five sons that I was crossing a line with them because I was so scared that they were going to terminate their own lives that I seemed angry when I was scared to death. Here's the problem. You may have fooled yourself. You may have fooled yourself into thinking that you're angry when you are in fact fearful. I'm not saying you did, per se, but it's a possibility because I know it can happen. It's happened to me. And I have had to caution people uh, in marital counseling and personal counseling in my teaching and personal interactions, not to make that mistake. And I would encourage you not to make that mistake now with these things. Provides an alternative. So don't fool yourself in thinking that you're angry instead of fearful. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts Set him apart in your hearts rather than fear. It, that's an imperative. That's not, uh, that's a direct command in other words. It's not the character of doing something else. Do this. Sanctify him as Lord in your hearts. This is not something that Christ does for you in other words. There are some things, right? A lot of things Christ does for you. We talked about a lot of those in the first part of First Peter. There are a lot of things that come simply by grace through faith, part of the package of you getting an identity in Christ. But this is an imperative. This is for you as a believer to do. Instead of being fearful of the intimidations of the world, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Notice that that's not the same. There's a lot of foolishness floating around churches over many decades now that you are responsible for making Jesus Lord of your life. Cheap chicken baloney doctrine. You don't make Jesus Lord of your life. Jesus has been Lord of your life since you were a one-celled organism inside of your mother. Jesus is Lord of all the lives. He is Lord of all the earth. He is the King of kings. You do not make Jesus Lord of your life. He is Lord of your life. The real question is how you relate to the Lord of your life. And we as believers are reconciled to him have our identity in him but it means something different it means to replace the fear in our hearts with Christ this is about replacing uh, replacing your emotional responses we've talked about this right um, when we talked about needing to long for the pure milk of the word, that you need to choose not to be bored by God's word. And I know some of you walked away from that, going, I can't choose what to be bored by. Yeah, you can. Yes, you can. It's time to grow up and not be bored by God's word. That's just Reality in your emotive responses, your emotional responses. You need to replace fear with the person and the work of Christ. Because even believers are prone to forget the benefits that he provides to us. In the place of fear, we are to set apart Christ. Sanctify him in that place. In other words, that is we're supposed to make that spot mutually exclusive. And we could correlate that to another biblical principle that perfect love casts out fear, right that Christ is perfect love, when we sanctify him in our hearts, it casts out fear. But I guarantee you that you know a lot of believers who are fearful, are they are you don't you? I mean you know them. There are symptoms to this that if we're running around like chicken little all the time, then I can tell you, you have not sanctified Christ as Lord in your heart. You have not replaced that emotional seed that is currently occupied by fear with Jesus Christ. You haven't done that. And that's not being judgmental. That's not being judgmental, especially if you ask me that. (laughs) Why am I fearful all the time? Pastors get asked this all the time because you haven't sanctified Christ as Lord in your heart. You haven't done that. It's not judgmental when you go to Walmart and get a COVID test. And 60% of the time, it's right all the time, right? It tells you you have COVID. You don't say, tell the test. Why are you judging me? Do you? Do you? Y'all are laughing like you do that. It's not judging you. It's assessing your symptoms and telling you what the cause is. That's not judgmental. It's an exclusive position. You can either have it with fear, filled with fear, or filled with Christ in your hearts. And this is something that we are given a command to do. Uh, if you have been to my house or you follow me on Facebook, you see probably some pictures that I've had. Uh, posted of some furniture that I've made. Uh, I have a predilection for mission-style furniture. Um, one day I decided that we were going to just replace our furniture with stuff that I made. I don't do this for a living anymore, but I like doing it. And I built one chair that if you go back through my, my Facebook pictures or whatever, you can see that my daughter and my wife are sitting at, side by side with room to spare. This is the chair that I made for me. It's the chair I made for me. My sons call it the throne. Anybody else sits in it and they lie down so far, they basically can't get back up. It's for me. Now, my daughter and my wife can sit in it, probably right now if they want it, but that's not what it's for. It is an exclusive position. It is for me. It's not for two people. That's not what it was designed for. Your heart was not designed to try to fit fear and Jesus in it at the same time. So don't try. They're mutually exclusive. You may assess your heart. You may look at your heart and say, "Uh, My heart is special. My heart is unique. I can do that. I can have room for fear, and I can still sanctify Christ. I can still love Jesus. I can still appreciate all the things He's done for me, and I can still live with hope for the future. The Bible disagrees with you. The Bible disagrees with you. If you sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, you are setting it apart as an exclusive position for Him. By the way, we are each to sanctify Christ as Lord in each of our hearts. Sanctify Him as Lord in our hearts. You are not supposed to try to sanctify Christ as Lord in somebody else's heart, by the way. Legislation, legalism, the ballot box, your political activities, your picketing. Do I need to go on? You're boycotting um, no matter what you don't buy from Target or Starbucks or whatever. You are, Target doesn't have a heart, and it can't sanctify Christ as Lord in a heart that doesn't exist. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart and let Jesus take care of the rest, please. That's where it's effective. That's where it's designed to operate. You can't actually even see into the heart of another man, right? Jesus alone had that that ability, right? John tells us that he knew what was in their hearts. You can see what's on my face. Most people find it somewhat objectionable most of the time. It's not intentional. It's just the face God gave me, so take it up with him. But you never know what's in my heart, really I can tell you I can tell you that I love you dearly I can tell you that I live my life sacrificially for you your husband wives can tell you this and to some degree you can see some actions that may correlate to that or may not correlate to it but you don't know what the thoughts and the intents of the heart are absolutely you cannot that's not empirical what does it look like we're almost done i know it looks like we have a few verses to go but we'll be done shortly sanctify christ as lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense or an apology To everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. What does it look like? It looks like readiness. Uh, It means that you ought to think about what it would require for you to tell somebody else about the hope that is in you and to be prepared to do that to everyone who asks. It's an important qualifier, isn't it? To everyone who asks, um, this does not mean, uh, well, I won't tell you all the things it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean a whole lot of things. It does mean that if somebody asks you about the hope that is in you, that you will have given it some forethought, some organization some ability to start from where you receive that hope and how you live in it. it is, it's remarkable how many Christians say, oh, well, you're at peace in your life, and what comes out of their mouth is a reason. is because I worked hard and I love America. Back up. It isn't because you worked hard and you love America. If it is, you don't have that much hope. To be honest, I've lost track of the inflation rate in the last few years. Should not hope in that monetary system. Anyway, please don't do that. Or at least if you do, don't tell them that you're a member of El Paso Bible Church before you do it, right? Because we want to make sure that we understand that the hope that is in us comes from Christ. And the reason that I can live my life without fear is because of Christ. And the reason that I have evidence that I'm doing that is because I've sanctified Christ as Lord in my heart, that I have followed the imperative, the command, to replace fear with the presence and the fixation of Christ in my emotions. And that's why I don't live fearfully. Well, why would anybody ask? It's right in the text. Why would anybody ask you about the hope that you have? You might want to ask yourself Has anybody ever asked you that? And maybe you, because maybe we need to ask the question differently Has anybody ever asked you about the hope that you have in you? And if they haven't, then why not? And I think this text answers that question by saying you're probably not living your life fearlessly. And the problem, if you're not living your life fearlessly, is that you haven't sanctified Christ as Lord in your heart. You haven't replaced your emotive directional uh, equipment, right, with Jesus in your focus, in your priorities. You haven't done that. If you are, uh, no one's going to ask, right? Um, if we're running around like Chicken Little, does anybody read Chicken Little anymore? Y'all know the reference, right? The sky is falling, the sky is falling. If you're, uh, the guy's still driving his car around with a mask on by himself. And they're out there. Still, a neighbor of mine rides his motorcycle with no helmet down Donovan with a paper towel over his mouth. Straight to something. Still happens. Saw a guy walking his dog out in the desert by himself with one on. Does that look hopeful to you? I mean, just aside from your opinions about the last few years, does that look oh fearless to you. Does it? Doesn't look like it to me. If you're fussing all day and all night about other people's political opinions, that doesn't look fearless either. We could go all, I mean, Christians, unfortunately, don't have a lot of distinction in this area, especially in the United States. They just don't. And they wonder why nobody asks them about the hope that is in them. Nobody knows they have it in most cases. But if we're hopeful and not fearful, we can stand calmly calmly, and with gentleness and give an account. If you're sitting at the the apex of a a fight or flight reaction, have you ever heard somebody try to talk? It's like they had a stroke. Word salad. You literally, physiologically, probably can't give an account for the hope that is in you if you're scared to death. You just can't do it. But with reverence and with gentleness, if you're in fact living a hopeful way in your life, then you are able to do that, to tell people about what Jesus offers, about the future that he has, because we are born again by grace through faith. We have an inheritance, an imperishable inheritance that is ready and reserved, waiting for us already, life with him perfectly and forever. We can go to other biblical records and know that that is life without fear, without sadness, without tears, without pain, without suffering, without threats of violence. And it's an absolute hope. Now listen, you don't have to preach a sermon to somebody, but you should give it some thought. How would I answer the question if somebody asked me why I'm not afraid and why I have hope? Also, keeping a good conscience. That's a participle, right? That's part of the imperative. Sanctifying Christ as Lord in your heart looks like this. Keeping a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. We should be able to do this without regrets, right? That we we would be able to communicate our fearlessness and our hope directly to anyone who asks all the time, every time they ask and to do it without regrets. In other words, no matter how they respond and that's where the conscience comes in. Have you told somebody about Jesus and they told you to go to hell? Have you told anybody about Jesus? If you do it enough, eventually they'll tell you to go to hell and get out of their face. It happened. Your conscience is not dependent on their response to that. Your conscience is not dependent on their response to that. You can walk away from an encounter like that and say, I did what was right. I did what was the correct thing, the righteous thing to do. My behavior was excellent, regardless of their response. possible, right? And you know what it feels like to do otherwise, right? Everybody has some regrets, right? You've behaved in ways that you shouldn't have, and you recognize that the only people that have no regrets in their life are fools, amen? You have some regrets or you're not growing, How you've lived your life, despite all the tattoos saying otherwise back from the 90s, there no regrets. All that says is, I'm an idiot. But it's an odd dynamic, isn't it? Because Peter gives us some gratification, doesn't he? See, the, this is an inversion. It's kind of an irony, I guess, when we respond in gentleness and reverence, explaining our hope to those who ask without regrets, with our defense that we've prepared beforehand, that we know what we're going to say to somebody, ask why we're not fearful in this situation. When we sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, all those things, then that doesn't negate verbal abuse. It doesn't negate the reviling of the world against us. But when we do that, it brings disgrace on people who hate us for it and shame. Some people don't like that terminology take it up with Peter or Jesus. See, as you can tell, a a fleshly believer, an immature believer, wants that end, don't they? Yeah? They want to bring absolute shame upon the world, disgrace upon the world. They want to beat it silly with the love of Jesus Christ. It's an irony for you, isn't it? They think that they can go out and order billboards, right? I wonder what ha- I just bought three tarps from a billboard company that sells them as tarps. I got a Wingstop and two Orange Juliuses. But I wonder what happened to Harold Camping's billboards. I wonder who put them on top of their hay pile. You remember Harold Camping? Disgraced. He's a fool. Billboards, right? They want to take out the billboards. They want to take out the signs. They want to pick it. They want to boycott. They want to rip people to bits so that they bring shame and disgrace on their enemies. You want to bring shame and disgrace on your enemies. Talk less. Respond when they ask. And don't tell them about all the stupid idiot sins that they commit. Tell them about the hope that you have in Jesus Christ calmly, and with reverence toward Jesus and towards the image-bearer of God that is standing in front of you. Right? You bear the image of God, and so does the idiot arguing with you, right? That's the way we should look at it at least. Rope ourselves back in. Shame has a place. Disgrace will come upon the world. But it will not be because you're angry at it. It will not be because you're angry at it. It will be because the church has expressed calmly and reverentially, gently, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ to everyone who asks. And the haters will get disgraced for that they will for hating us for expressing that hope sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts first step probably for most of us today is to give it some forethought as to what we would say when someone asks us why we're not fearful to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ We might need to back it up a little bit further and try to assess what the obstruction is to us actually sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts. That a preoccupation with human failure, unreasonable expectations of our leadership, of our spouse, of our friends, of our business, those kinds of things. What's the obstacle? Because if you stumble over the words too long as to how you would explain your hope in Jesus Christ, it may be that you're still bound up in fearfulness. Again, it's not a judgment. It's not an accusation. It's not hate. Y'all know I don't hate you, right? I love you. Love you dearly. And I want you to be hopeful and not fearful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, We thank you for your word. uh, Tell us what to expect in life. To tell us how to respond. uh, How to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you, to keep our behavior excellent among the nations. Father, we do thank you for all of the blessings you've given to us. Uh, not the least of which is our, our daily supply, our daily food. And we thank you for the meal that we're about to share in the fellowship over the table. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.
1: Uh, would you stand with us? We'll dismiss with a song.
2: Guys, you are dismissed, uh, but because...